Scripture to the book of Acts, chapter 26. We will be reading uh, for the second Sunday in a row this chapter in its entirety. We are currently going through a series of uh, sermons in the book of Acts. For those of you who are visiting us, we've taken one chapter at a time. And um, actually, when we, get to when we got to chapter 26, I told you that we would have at least two sermons. Um, I, I really don't know if, uh, if that's all we'll have, depending on how this morning will go. Um, last week, I told you I, uh, I would have two sermons at least, uh, but I only got to preach half of last week's sermon. So um, there are six points that I want to bring from this chapter. I was hoping to finish three points last week, but I only got to one and a half. So you do the math, how much I have left today. Um, we'll see if we finish. If not, we'll pick up two weeks from today and we'll continue. Uh, so we almost have like a mini series within chapter 26 here in this large series of the book of Acts. But uh, hopefully you found the chapter by now. It's on page number 935 in the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you. Let's uh, listen to God's Word as uh, it is revealed to us. It is for our benefit and it is for um, our growth together. Here is the Word of the Lord. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so. In Jerusalem, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection... I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than, all, than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Is it hard for you to kick against the goats? And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those whom are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here, testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by, see, by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as He was saying these things in His defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could, could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts. Father, Thank you that you revealed this truth to us. Thank you that you aim it for our hearts. Lord, we pray that would you use your Holy Spirit present among us today. Use him to speak to our hearts. May this word penetrate us. May this word change us and transform us. Equip us, encourage us, challenge us for the glory of your name. We pray. Amen. Well, friends, I mentioned last week, I gave last week the background for this uh, speech. It's a defense speech.
that Paul gets to give um, for the last time in Judea. Uh, this time it's before King Agrippa, before the Roman tribunes, before all the high leaders of the city of Caesarea. The church in Caesarea could, not, could have not pulled this off, um, to have such an audience to speak the gospel so clearly and, and plainly. The Holy Spirit made this possible. God orchestrated for this, that, that, that Paul would really have a chance to defend why he's in prison, why he's in chains, why should, go, should he go to Rome and be tried by Caesar? Well, even though we don't stand in courts defending um, the gospel ministry, this speech is very valuable for us today, very informative for us, because we really get to hear how Paul summarized the gospel ministry. How Paul spoke about this gospel ministry for which he was in change. And, and, and in that sense, friends, this speech is so valuable for all of us, even though we're not in chains for the gospel, even though we don't have to give a defense for the gospel in a public court, in a public trial. Friends, this gospel ministry has been entrusted to all of us. And in that sense, if you're a believer, if you're a member of this congregation, I really hope and pray that this message is just a review. What you will hear today is nothing new, hopefully. I'm not planning to say anything new. I'm, I'm hoping to review things that we should all by now, if we're believers, if we're followers of Christ, if we're members of this congregation, if you've been a part of this church for a long time, that this will be a review. Now, if you're visiting us this morning, I pray that God's Word would speak to you. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian this morning, I hope you would get to understand what the Christian message, what the gospel message is truly about. As we look last week, I, I want, just want to review briefly what I said last week, that this gospel ministry is first and foremost about an ancient hope that God gave to His people in the Old Testament. It's about an ancient hope of restoration, and that restoration, God promised to do it through the resurrection, through resurrecting His people, bringing them to light, life. Now, Paul began to preach this ancient hope to bring them this life that God promised. But Paul preached it as inaugurated in Jesus, as, as if the commencement, as if the inauguration of this great hope of, of resurrection happened through Jesus. This was Paul's message. And he's preaching that now God is offering, has actually brought about this, this resurrection life, this promise of restoration God brought it in His Son, Jesus. The second characteristic that we looked at, we really be, just barely began looking last week, um, of this gospel ministry, not only is it about an ancient hope of restoration, it's also about opening people's eyes so they may turn. This is how Jesus described Paul's mission, Paul's commission. Why is Jesus sending Paul? so that he would open their eyes. Look at verse 18. Look at how Jesus described Paul's commission. Why is Paul sent by Jesus? Verse 18, to open their eyes so they may turn. 
Did you hear that? Yes, the gospel ministry is about enabling people to turn by opening their eyes. It, the gospel ministry, it gives people and enables people to experience a major change in their lives. Accepting the gospel is not just about accepting a set of beliefs. It's about making it possible for people to turn by opening their eyes. Well, this is where I want to pick it up today. So if you like taking notes, the first point last week was the gospel ministry is about an ancient hope of restoration. Point two, as we're picking up about the gospel ministry, is that the gospel ministry opens our eyes so we may turn. Turn from what? Turn from what? Turn from being irreligious to being religious? Turn from uh, being a bad person to being a good person? Turn from being an immoral person to being a moral person? I want you to think about this turn. Turn from what? Well, Jesus defined it for Paul, and Jesus defines it for us as well. First, and there's, there are two descriptions, and by the way, they're the same description. The first description is turn from darkness to light. This is how God describes a state of, of his own people, not just of the Gentiles, of his own people. In Isaiah 6, God's people are, are being described as unable to see. Even though they have eyes, they're unable to perceive what God is doing in their midst. Even though they were publicly very religious, God says, they've missed God. They've missed me. They've missed to understand what God was doing. Oh, friend, how many people, even today, may still have their eyes closed, even though they could be very religious? Churches. Churches can lose the sight of the gospel. They can, they can actually close their eyes to the message of salvation, of God's salvation through Jesus alone. Churches do that when they become unclear about what the gospel is. And sadly, there is a growing number of churches in our day who have closed their eyes to the gospel. We, we, we're called to make the gospel known and clear so that people may open their eyes so may, they may be able to turn from darkness to light. This is the first imagery, and we talked about this last week. But there's a second imagery, and this is where we, I want to unpack it for us today. There's a second imagery that describes this turn, not just from darkness to light, but look in verse 18, from the power of Satan to God. I want you to think about this. What is this turn from? From the power of Satan to God. This is how God describes humanity apart from God. Under the power of Satan. And people don't even know it. That's how blind sin is. You know how we know that people don't even know it? Go and just talk to any person who's not a believer. <laughs> now, don't do this, but if you were to do this. Uh, this is not wise evangelistically, just to tell them, um, you are under the power of Satan. What would, the, what would be the 
the likely answer you'll get back. Just like Festus told Paul, you're out of your mind. Your religion is driving you out of your mind. You know, people don't even know. People who don't have Christ don't even know that they are under the power of Satan. And if you were just to tell them that, they would think that you're crazy. That's how blinding this power is. People don't even realize it. Someone may object and say, well, are you saying that people who are without Christ are under the power of, of Satan? Because I have a hard time accepting that. I believe people are good. I believe people are free. And I just cannot imagine, I cannot even start accepting this truth that you say that people without Christ are under the power of Satan. Friends, we can appreciate someone saying that. Um, friends, I would like to believe that. I too would like to believe that. I would like to believe people are good inherently inside of them. I would like to believe that people are truly free. But that's not how God revealed it to us. When He does an x-ray of our spiritual condition, that's not how God describes us. That's why Jesus appeared to Paul and said to Paul, I'm sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Listen how else Paul describes us when we are without Christ. Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Wow. Mankind, apart from God, is under the power of Satan. Now, friends, from Ephesians, we realize that the power of Satan does not feel bad. The power of Satan doesn't feel ugly. It actually feels good. It makes us live in the passions of our flesh. It leads us to carry out the desires of the body. It allows us to act according to our own ways, freely. This is the power of Satan. This is how it manifests. That's why his power is so deceiving, because it feels so good. It feels so freeing. It feels so entitling. It gives the impression of freedom, that we can do whatever we want. But it keeps us away from seeing what we actually are in reality. Children of wrath. The wrath of God against all sin. The power of Satan keeps this truth away from people. But in preaching the gospel... God reveals our true condition apart from Him. And we are told that the penalty of sin is death. We are told also in the gospel that God, however, provided a way of escape from this bondage, from this wrath. And God's Spirit opens people's eyes so they may hear these truths and they may realize that what the devil 
made them believe was actually not true. And in reality, their condition is so much worse. And yet, in the gospel, there's not only a revelation of our our bad condition, but there's a door of escape. And that door of escape is Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the news that Christ paid for the penalty of our rebellion so that all those who turn to Him in faith and repentance can have an escape from the wrath of God. Friends, this is... This is the news of gospel. It provides an escape from the power of Satan to God. People may not realize they are in this darkness. This connection may be too hard for them. It may be too extreme for them. What do you mean? The whole world is under the power of Satan? Yes. Remember Jesus when he was tempted in the desert? And, the, and Satan, uh, the serpent, um, brought him three temptations. Remember, one of them was the following. It was a, a really great deal that, that Satan thought was, was giving Jesus. Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth and their glory. And Satan told Jesus, all these I will give you if you worship me. When Satan said that, who, to whom do all these belong? Under whose power are they? Under the power of Satan. That's why the gospel is so important. The gospel is a message sent to all those who are under the power of Satan so that they may escape that and come under the power of Christ. Oh, friend, The gospel frees us from the power of Satan. It frees us from the darkness of his deceptive ways. It opens our eyes so that we would indeed turn to light, turn to God. Friend, let me ask you this morning, has this turn happened in your life? Has this turn happened in your life? If you're not a Christian, I pray you would consider this turn seriously this morning. If you think you're a Christian but you're not sure, whether or not this turn has actually happened in your life. I pray that you would consider what the gospel promises, what the gospel claims, what the gospel calls us to do, and pray that you would be sure, assured that this turn is happening or has happened in your life. I'd love to talk to you more about this. If you're not a Christian, I pray, oh friend, that this morning, that you would embrace this turn, that you would turn from light, from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. I pray that you would see, that God's Spirit would enable you to see the necessary turn, and that you would be enabled to make it. I'd love to talk to you after the service if this is your desire. Make no mistake, the gospel ministry aims to open people's eyes so they may experience the most important turn in their lives, from darkness to light, the power of Satan. To God. Third, a third description that we see in this passage is that the gospel ministry is also able to grant us great benefits. If somehow the, the, this whole turn scared you, and, and it sounds such a scary picture from the power of Satan to God, the gospel also gives us great benefits. There's some tremendous benefits that we're given in the gospel, and Jesus revealed to Paul just two here. There are many more. 
but there are two revealed to Paul in this passage. And Paul makes this, these benefits known to Agrippa and to all those who are listening to him that day. And these two benefits are, first, forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 18b. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. Because man has alienated himself from God through his sin and disobedience. Man's greatest need is to deal with his sin. How? Because the gospel tells us man cannot deal with his sin. Man can never do enough on his own, no matter, how, no matter how many good works. Man can never deal enough with his sin. No matter how religious he becomes, no matter how good he becomes. So how can man deal with his sin? Well, the gospel tells us that God must grant forgiveness. God must grant forgiveness of sin. We cannot earn this. It must be given to us. And it's given to us in the gospel when people open their eyes and turn to God. Friends, there is no forgiveness of sins apart from this turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. This is why we must turn to God so that we might receive forgiveness of sins. But there's a second benefit. Look at the second part of verse 18. Not only that they may be receive forgiveness of sins, there's an and. They may also receive a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The gospel doesn't just offer us forgiveness. It offers us a place, a place among those who are sanctified, those who are set aside for God, those who are made holy, those who are called and declared to be saints. And that's why, friends, salvation is not just an escape from hell, nor just an entrance into heaven. It's an entrance and a, a reception among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. Now, some people have a hard time with this benefit. Of all the gospel benefits that we get, this is the one that most, Christian to, most Christians today would not mind uh, putting on a back burner. They don't really care much about this. You know how I know that? Why do I say that? Because we have an awful lot of Christians today and an idea today that the Christian life is to be lived alone or to be journeyed alone. And this idea that the gospel actually gives us a place among the saints just doesn't get our hearts excited. <laughs> or not nearly as excited as the other benefits of the gospel. And yet, friends, this is what Paul is told by Jesus. This is what the gospel grants us, a place among those who have been sanctified by faith in Christ. Friends, there is no such thing as just you and Jesus kind of Christianity. Christianity is not a private religion. Please get this out of your mind. If someone doesn't like to be with God's people, that's a huge red flag. That's a huge red flag. They, may mis they actually may misunderstand the gospel and what a true Christian is. And what God truly does when He converts us. When He gives us a new heart. When people respond to the gospel, they get a seat on the team of Jesus. And there's so many commands in the New Testament on how these team players ought to 
follow their captain together. Do you realize that if you choose not to associate yourself with God's people, you actually reject what the gospel offers you? Do we realize that? This is huge. This is tr- the idea of living as a church is not an auxiliary, an option to salvation. It's what salvation produces of people sanctified by God who live life together, bound together, and by their love for one another, and by their community with one another, and they, by their covenant with one another, they actually display to a world the love of God made visible today. There's no longer crucifixes. There's no longer Jesus hanging on a cross visibly to show the love of God for the world. You know how the world is supposed to know the love of God visibly? By the way, this group of people lives life together, not just on Sunday when we're gathered here, every day of the week. That's what church is. That's what it means to be a church. That's what it means to to be a fruit of the gospel. Friends, when we don't display this love and unity and, and bound togetherness, we actually misrepresent the love of God. The gospel ministry gives us great benefits. It grants forgiveness of sins. It grants a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. Another, another benefit. The next benefit is the gospel ministry declares people what, what they must do. The gospel ministry declares people what they must do. Because this turn that we mentioned is so significant, because this turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God is, is so significant, Paul makes it his personal life ministry to go and speak about it. Look at verse 19, how Paul responded to this great commission, to this great promise of opening the eyes so people may turn. Look at verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declare first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. What? What did Paul declare? That they should repent and turn to God. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. The message of the gospel aims not simply to inform us, but to lead us to respond positively. And this response includes repentance and faith together. Notice how Jesus described the saints in verse 18. Those who are sanctified by faith in me. The response to the gospel involves this act of faith. Faith in what? Faith that the only way for sinners like us to be declared right, declared holy between a holy God, before a holy God is by, by trusting, relying upon the sacrifice of Christ. But the response to the gospel involves not just faith, it involves repentance as well. The turn to God involves an actual turn. I don't have any other words. The turn to God involves an actual turn. That's why when Paul describes the nature of the gospel ministry to King Agrippa, to the higher officials, Paul makes it very clear that he has been declaring all throughout his ministry that people should repent and turn to God. 
Friend, do you speak to people like that? Do you speak to people like that? That you declare to people that they should repent and turn to God. And remember, this is not a theological lecture that Paul is giving us here. He's actually before a king. He's actually before Roman higher officials. And he's telling them, this is what the gospel does. This is what the gospel tells people to do. That they, they, they should repent and turn to God. But if you're not a Christian, I pray, I plead with you today, repent and turn to God. You are a Christian. I'd like to ask you, do you think about the gospel message in this, these terms? Think with me for a moment. When was the last time you spoke the gospel to somebody? I'm going to let you five seconds to think about it. Last time you spoke the gospel to someone. And by the way, speaking the gospel is a matter of obedience, not of gifts. Paul said, I was not disobedient to the gospel. Speaking the gospel is a matter of obedience for every Christian. Yes, some might be more gifted than others, but it's a matter of obedience for every Christian. So think with me, last time you spoke the gospel to someone, may have been a long, long time ago, may have been very recent, did you, did you say they must repent and turn to God? I mean, is this language even part of our vocabulary of evangelism? Or do we like softer ways, more easy ways? Just inviting Jesus in your heart kind of stuff. You know, just invite Jesus in your heart. It's not hard. Just invite him. Oh, no, friends. The gospel calls us to repent and turn to God by placing our faith in Christ. That's why, friends, when we think about the gospel message, we want to be very careful and, and clear what it is, what the gospel is, and what it calls people to do. And I want, to, I want to impress upon you, gently, sweetly, tell people they must repent and turn to God. Because at stake is what? The turn. From darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. One, one way I do this is I simply, when I talk to people, depending on what stage I am in the conversation, you know, so with some people I'm going to be able to have more gospel conversations. I not, may not have the entire gospel conversation in one sitting. With some, you can do that. With others, you don't know if you're going to see them again. The Spirit might prompt you to actually speak the whole gospel and, and speak to them and tell them sweetly and clearly that responding to the gospel involves a turning away from their old life, from their life of rebellion, from their life of ignoring God to a life of embracing God, of making Him King and Savior. And sweetly telling them they must repent and turn to God. Friends, it's really not that hard if you think about putting that vocabulary in your mind. But tell people what gospel calls us to do. Another clarification, another aspect of the gospel ministry, the gospel ministry clarifies what a true turn to God is. When it comes to speaking about repentance, notice what else Paul says. He doesn't just say about just a, a one-time act of repentance. He actually says, 
that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Did you hear that? It's interesting that Paul includes this phrase here, this description of what true repentance involves. It produces deeds that reflect, reflect what repentance truly is. Now, let's be very clear again. I want to make sure we understand we don't perform these deeds of repentance to actually earn God's favor, to actually earn God's salvation. No, not at all. God's favor is still given to us freely while we were still sinners. But once we make that turn, once that turn happens, oh, friends, that repentance and that turn is not just a one-time deal. It's a lifelong experience. True repentance produces in us deeds of repentance. The life of a Christian is a life of repentance ongoingly. I love what Martin Luther, um, when he wrote the first the, the theses, the 95 theses on the Wittenberg Church, the first sentence of the 95 theses says the following, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, he intended that the entire life of the believer should be repentance. Paul's gospel ministry was not to declare a cheap gospel, an easy believism, an easy believism that accepts the Bible as true, accepts that we must be saved, it even may have professed faith in Christ at one point in the past, but it does not produce deeds of repentance. There is no real turn in someone's life unless it's a lasting turn. There's no real turn unless it's a lasting turn. Just a temporary experience, just a superficial experience will not prove authentic. I hear occasional people say uh, this phrase, well, about somebody else. He's not really walking with the Lord, but I know he's saved. Friends, if someone is not walking with the Lord, he may not be saved. That's why, he may not be, that's why he's not walking with the Lord presently. He may not be. It's a, it's a huge red flag. True and genuine repentance produces deeds in keeping with that repentance. And Paul included this teaching in his gospel preaching. One example of this easy believism in our text is actually Agrippa. Agrippa, Paul says about him, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Agrippa believed the prophets. At least Paul thought so. But was he a Christian? He was not. He knew the prophecies. He knew what was supposed to come, but he never made that turn. Oh, friend, I pray you understand that the gospel produces in us lasting fruit. Fruit that will last. That's what the gospel produces in us. Lastly, the gospel ministry places confidence in God for true conversion. Gospel, comp gospel ministry places confidence in God for true conversion. When Agrippa interrupted Paul and said to him, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul looked at him and look at what verse 29. Paul says, Whether short or long, I would to God. That not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Notice where God, where Paul is placing his confidence for their conversion. I would to God. That phrase could also be translated, I make request to God. Or I pray to God. Notice what Paul says. When it's time to actually think about conversion, who is in charge? Who's responsible? And where is Paul's confidence in turning his audience to become Christians? 
not any skills, not any speech. I went to God. God is a place of confidence. Sometimes we think of, you know, if, if somebody could just hear this preacher or that evangelist preach a gospel, you know, they would come to know the Lord. Oh, friends, don't think that way. Don't think that way, because even Paul, the great evangelist, when it came time to think about confidence in someone's conversion, he places confidence on God himself. We're called to make the gospel clear. We're called to proclaim it and to teach it. We must call people to repent and turn to God in faith. This is not a matter of, of just a, a one-time decision. This is not a matter of giftedness. But it's a matter of obedience to God. Yet at the end of the day, our confidence for conversion is in God. Six things, let me clarify for us. Six things that we've been in this chapter realizing about the gospel ministry. The gospel ministry is about an ancient hope for the resurrection. It's rooted in the past, way back. It's not something new. The gospel ministry opens our eyes so we may turn. Turn from darkness to light. Turn from the power of Satan to God. The gospel ministry grants us great benefits, like forgiveness of sins and a place among the saints. The gospel ministry declares to people what they must do. They must repent and turn to God. The gospel ministry clarifies what a true turn to God is, a turn that produces deeds of repentance. The gospel ministry places confidence in God for true conversion. Friends, I hope, that this, I hope that this is not new to you. And if it is, I pray that you would consider whether or not this is truly God's word or not. We claim to, to make the gospel clear according to the way he revealed it to us. I pray that we as a congregation might be zealous and obedient in making this gospel known so that people may indeed turn. Pray that we would be the kind of people that indeed would, could say like Paul, I was not disobedient in obeying this vision. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you remind us and you have provided for us such a beautiful summary of the gospel ministry as Paul experienced it in his lifetime. Oh Lord, I pray, we pray that you would May this gospel ministry be a part of our regular experience as a church life, as a church community. Make it a regular experience of what we do as believers. Father, we pray that you would draw people to yourself through this hope of the gospel, even now, even today, even in our own midst. Lord, we pray that you would be exalted, that you would let this light of the gospel reach the ends of the earth. And even those who are from the ends of the earth here in the city of Austin, gathered here. We pray that we might reach them. We pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand and let us conclude our time of corporate worship together?